Hello, I'm Emily Karen. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Stars and Stripes Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. That was good. Really? I like that. <laughs> Thank <That's> you. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you uh, astutely listening will notice that is not Scott Soshnick. Scott is uh, is traveling today, but Emily has very graciously agreed to give us one David Stern anecdote in the next 25 minutes as a way of filling the void. Emily, thank you for joining me. Of course. I'm sorry that I don't have a focus group of any to contribute either, <laughs> but I'll do my best. How was your, uh, how was your 4th of July? 4th of July was good. Uh, it's very hot on the East Coast right now and a little swampy, but I can't complain. How was yours? I have, and this is the third straight year. I think this is a COVID thing where uh, so many neighborhoods in New York City, just the, the amateur firework uh, displays are <laughs> off the chain. Um, so we had, we had, our neighborhood was exploding well past midnight uh, on Tuesday night, but I did have a good, I had a good 4th of July uh, and since we're talking about the the birth of of the nation, uh, it's an easy transition uh, to talk about one of America's most beloved and most successful national teams. The U.S. women's national soccer team, Emily, is gearing up to start play in the Women's World Cup down in Australia and New Zealand uh, starting in a few weeks, I think, in, in, in two or three weeks. Yeah, the um, 20th. We'll be here sooner than we, uh, than we know. Amazing. I'm excited about this. I actually really love... I love both the men's and the women's World Cups. Uh, this is a, a topic that you have been covering uh, pretty extensively, and I imagine that the next few weeks are going to be pretty busy as well. Uh, give us let's let's start wherever you want to, but but let's talk about the business of the women's World Cup, uh, which is not quite as big as the men's, but I imagine is maybe underutilized historically, like a lot of other women's sports properties are. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, It's going to be a really interesting year from a a business perspective, right? This is the first year that FIFA has kind of separated out the women's tournaments, commercial rights from the men's, Um, you know, no longer selling their TV rights in a package deal with the men's World Cup um, and thinking about just kind of how to maximize the value there a little bit differently. Um, If you look at the last kind of round of World Cups, the Women's World Cup in 2019 did about 30% of the viewership that the Men's World Cup did, um, which I think is a bigger number than people probably expect. Um, FIFA, so the, FIFA kind of used that as a benchmark to figure out how much they want to ask for for some of these media rights and the commercial value of some of the deals they're doing. Um, in kind of typical FIFA fashion, they inflated those a little bit. Um, so I think they were at one point touting like they had 50% of the audience. And I'm sure if you kind of include social and digital and all the other places that, um, you know, FIFA uses to reach soccer fans around the world, uh, you may have gotten there, but just strictly from a TV perspective, it was about 30%. Um, so I think one of the interesting things is kind of going to be keeping an eye on what that television audience in the key markets looks like, right? One of the big storylines we saw coming out a few months ago was, uh, you know, FIFA was asking for more from their European partners than what they were offering, yeah, and can you dive of, into that? Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, very sternly uh, chastised oh, yeah. the the European a collection of European uh, TV networks and, and and media partners for what he said was I don't remember the exact wording, but he made it clear that the offers they were making to broadcast this Women's World Cup were uh, woefully under what he thought the, these rights were worth. It's pretty rare for uh, for someone who is looking for money from partners to to also very publicly. Um, reprimand them for not offering him enough. 
yeah, it was a really interesting uh, situation. And it, honestly, kind of a risky move um, on FIFA's part. It's basically they came out and said, like, if you're not going to pay us what we think these are worth, like, we're just not going to do a deal. Hmm. They essentially said, we're not going to take a deal that's less than what we've decided these rights are worth. And instead, we will just use our own FIFA streaming platform and broadcast them digitally and figure out other ways to make this work. Obviously, the reach there is probably significantly less than if you're partnering with kind of the national uh, networks in these major countries. And you're not talking about small countries here. You're talking about kind of five big European markets, including England, France, you know, countries that have teams that are poised to do or expected to do well in the tournament. Um, so it was definitely not a threat that was made without risk there. Um, but the, the the numbers that they were talking about were anywhere from, uh, that they were being offered from these partners, FIFA said, was anywhere from kind of 120th to like 1 100th of what they paid for the men's tournament mm. rights. So they were like not even in the ballpark of 25% of what we paid or 30% of what we paid or even 15. Um, so it was a pretty clear line in the sand that FIFA drew. Sounds like it paid off. They haven't, you know, there's not been a ton released about the deals that they actually struck, but they did very recently finally come to agreements there um, that presumably are worth more than what the initial offers uh, were made for. So I think now having to kind of deliver an audience comparable with the money that they demanded is probably the next big step there is to kind of keep elevating or climbing up the ladder, if you will, in terms of looking at what kind of your next set of rights can get. Yeah, having this event blacked out across Europe feels like a very bad, would have Horrible. been a very bad result. <laughs> um, even if I, I maybe do even commend uh, FIFA for taking a stand against what it felt like was a was an undervalued property. But it, it is interesting that 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 has has resolved itself. Going back to what you said at the beginning, what is the motivation? Is it a business motivation? Is it public pressure? What led FIFA to? after decades of, of selling the women's rights as as a piece of, of, of a better bigger contract that involves the men's rights, what led them to say, okay, you know what, we're actually going to start spinning this off. We're going to do our own, some of our own sponsorship deals. We're going to do some of our own media deals. What, what led to that decision? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's something that I know you and I have written about in other sports as well, right? If you think about NCAA is looking at this a little bit totally. too, is just yeah. realizing that there may that bundling may not necessarily be the right way to maximize value of your assets, but also be that in bundling, it kind of becomes tricky to attribute value, right? Some of these organizations struggle to attribute the right amount of money to different assets when they're all kind of packaged up in these big deals. Um, so I think part of it is, you know, there's obviously public pressure from FIFA. FIFA does not necessarily have the greatest track record in terms of, uh, what it's done for the women's game, or, or there've been, uh, you know, several instances where questionable partnerships have been made or things that it don't necessarily support, uh, women or uh, women around the world. So I think part of it, yes, is obviously responding to public pressure to invest more in, the women's game and to kind of try to get it to the same level uh, as the men's world cup, which obviously FIFA that's like their crown jewel in terms of, uh, you know, revenue and reach. Um, but then I think another part of it is just, like I said, realizing that there's maybe more value that they can extract from doing it this way, right? There are sponsors and partners that you may not rope into a bigger world cup package that you can entice to partner with you for this women's world cup, which a is probably a little bit low of a price point, but also when you're only partnering with one asset instead of two, obviously it's not going to cost you as much as if you have to sponsor both the men's and women's world cups as one lump sum. That seems like the, that seems like the big one to me that, and we, we see this in, in other, a lot of other sports, the, 
lowering the price point obviously means a lot of companies that more companies are are able to bid on the the FIFA men's world cup sponsorships are are among the most, if not the most expensive sports sponsorships that you can sign globally. And there are a lot of companies I'm sure that would love to be involved in the world cup in some capacity that are never going to have the ability to pay that. But also a lot of companies and NWSL I think has done a really good job. And you've covered this at Sportico, Emily, uh, of finding companies for whom partnering specifically with women's sports, just better aligns with, either their product or their public image, whatever it is that there are, there are companies out there uh, for whom um, even price aside partnering on the, on the women's game is actually maybe even more enticing or more appealing to them than, than partnering on the men's side. Yeah. I think, you know, you mentioned NWSL and like Shady Grove fertility is the perfect example of that, Mm. right? Like Shady Grove has done, I think it's three, if not four deals with women's sports teams in the last three months alone. Uh, you know, from a regional and from a national perspective of realizing that like there is a medical category there that hadn't even existed before, that they can open up a new category that pertains particularly to this audience, but also to the players who are involved here. And so I think it's a, a lot of that, like you said, where there are just, you know, that's a product fit that doesn't exist in, you know, sponsoring the men's World Cup. I'm glad you mentioned the NCAA because I it did it, it triggered something in my mind as well. The the I think folks who listen to this show know because Scott and I have talked about it before. But outside of the men's basketball tournament, all of the NCAA postseason tournaments are all packaged into one ESPN deal. And there's been a lot of talk about spinning the women's basketball tournament, which is the most valuable of those other events, out of that package. And it seems like the NCAA could very well go that route in the future. The big difference here being obviously in in the NCAA version, the women's basketball tournament is the crown jewel of that package in this soccer version. The, the, the men's world cup obviously still is the crown jewel of of the, of the combined entity. But I do think it's interesting that, and and I think we'll see more of this in other instances around the globe, the, 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 the the way in which men's and women's sports uh, have been bundled together for a lot of ways. And the NBA and the W are dealing with this in a, in a, in a slightly different way. But I I think we're going to continue to see these two things separate a bit uh, moving forward. And I think it's just healthier in general to see, to, to see, individual sports individual properties stand on their own because because you're right it's we deal with this as journalists a lot just finding understanding the the valuations of things is really hard when it's a package of in the ncaa's case 25 events or in in the in the in the world cup package it's it's three or four from what i understand there's some youth or there was some youth events in there as well Uh, i think you get a better understanding of what exactly something is worth when you when you spin it off on your own and and that could be good and or or that could be bad depending on i guess what we learn uh, over over the next few world cup cycles yeah and i mean at the very least though good or bad right like you get a better understanding of the market value of these properties, um, which I think is something that has been absent in women's sports across the board uh, for a long time. Correct me if I'm wrong, the, the U.S. TV rights were not sold as, as separately, correct? We're, we're still in, in, in Fox having the Women's World Cup as part of its bigger Men's World Cup package. Is that right? Yeah, that's like the Fox Telemundo um, deal, yeah. correct? Got it. Okay. So at some point in the U.S., the the U.S. broadcasters will also deal with this thing, which is the idea of kind of deciding how much the women's game is worth. And and, and we'll see. I'm actually fascinated to see in the future in the U.S. where we can add the what, what the men's rights cost and what the women's rights cost uh, and, and compare that to, to roughly what – the, the bundle was getting in years prior. Uh, I'm actually really curious to see to see what that looks like. Another metric beyond the, the sponsorships that seems to be going really well, Emily, 
ticket sales from from what I've read it sounds like they've already outsold uh the the event 4 years ago which was in France um that also seems like a really good indicator of uh, of of commercial things on the uh, on the upswing here for 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 the women's world cup yeah absolutely i think uh the one metric that i saw floating around this week a lot was uh the matildas their opener so obviously australia is one of the host countries um their opening match against i think it's ireland uh they actually had to move stadiums because the first stadium it was scheduled to play in had like a 42,000 fan capacity that's too they, small. Yeah. <laughs> first of all, shouldn't have been scheduled there yet that, yeah. to begin with. Um, <laughs> but they are now playing in an 80,000 person stadium in Sydney and it's sold out. Um, you know, I think you are definitely seeing kind of interest. At, right. We're talking about like a group stage here. You're not talking about like the final um, or even the semifinals. And so I think that's a really good sign. One of the interesting things, though, is that the split in terms of ticket sales between Australia and New Zealand, super skewed toward Australia. Hmm. Uh, I think, you know, obviously New Zealand is a smaller country. Um, you mean they for are, buyers or for games in those countries? For buyers. The games are for pretty buyers. evenly split okay. um, between the group stages. I think there are maybe, I had this in my notes. I was actually going through the entire, where every team is going <laughs> for every stage uh, and who's <laughs> going the most places. But um, yeah, they are, so there are six venues in Australia for in New Zealand. But in terms of ticket sales, I think it's something like 80% of the tickets sold for the event have been sold at for matches in Australia. So obviously, there's still a little bit of time to go. But I think that was probably a bigger divide than what was expected, right? I don't think anyone was thinking this was going to be a 50-50 split. But 80-20 is a pretty big gap. I would think weather has something to do there. But I would assume the weather in the winter, dead of winter in New Zealand is, is quite a bit worse than it is in Australia. But but these fans should also understand that the there's there's less poisonous spiders, there's less poisonous snakes. <laughs> there's like all these reasons why. You I should think, be uh, FIFA's new, uh, the people, new spokesperson honestly, for their sales. Uh, if, if you gave me an option, all things considered, of, of going to Australia or going to New Zealand, I'm going to New Zealand 10 times out of 10. Uh, for all these other ancillary critter critter specific reasons. Um, also, so- New Zealand is a smaller country, and the venues are closer together. So, in theory, if you want to go to see matches at a number of different venues hosting them, where you want to go see different groups and different teams playing, easier to do there logistically. I think we're onto something here, Emily. I think we can. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think we should shift the, uh, the 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 ticket sales strategy a little bit to focus more on uh, on the snakes and the uh, and the spiders. Uh, another thing I want to get to here, you and our colleague Asla wrote a really interesting story uh, a couple weeks ago about the payouts uh, for for the athletes and and the and the governing bodies that are taking part in the Women's World Cup. FIFA has very ceremoniously and very publicly talked about raising the amount of money that it is giving to to the athletes that are participating in this event way more than, than, than women have made for the World Cup in the past. Uh, a little bit less uh, public about where exactly, how exactly that money is going to be distributed. Um, what, what can you tell us about uh, the, the, the payouts that, that athletes are getting at the World Cup this year relative to, uh, to years past? It's really interesting because I feel like this is a story that like you would never even have to think about in men's sports or talking about like the men's World Cup uh, is the fact that there were as of 2019 and even as of kind of other events, global soccer events that have happened since, there are a number of women's teams and players that don't have contracts or don't have like collective bargaining agreements and who mm. don't have stipulations that they are paid. So there were teams that participated in the 2019 World Cup who their players never made a dime off of 
their participation and their talent and whatever else. There were players who were severely underpaid, players who were not paid at all. And so what FIFA did this year, what you alluded to, is recognizing that that's a problem that they publicly at least need to be a participant in solving. Um, They kind of really uniquely split the prize pool up so that you know, X amount is going to go to the players based on how far their team advances and X will go to the federations and so the countries actually still get money from doing this. But the problem so, is... So, hold on, just to interrupt real quick. So, FIFA is essentially saying, we don't trust our members correct. to give this money to the women that have earned it. And as a result, we are now trying to go around our own membership to make sure that the women get the money that they've earned. Is that the, uh, the right way to think about that? Except the fact that in theory, in theory, yes, but these federations will still be given a check from FIFA, right? All the money is still going to be funneled through the federations. The FIFA is basically then saying to the federations, we're giving you X amount of money for your participation based on how far you guys advanced in the tournament. Uh, Now this percentage is owed to your players and here's how much each of them is owed, but there's no actual enforcement mechanism in place Mm -hmm. for that. Right. The play, unless FIFA goes through like direct deposit payments to the players, they're still in theory trusting the countries that they are paying to do the, the rest of the delegating for them. And that's where I think there's a lot of skepticism on how this will actually be implemented. Right. Because if you're giving some of these federations that have notoriously had issues with paying their players all of it and just saying, like, in good faith, we trust you, like, make these payments, you actually have no power in enforcing that. It is interesting to, to to hear that the women's event gets 30% of, of, of the viewership, but in so many of these other lower ways or, or, or maybe more behind the scenes ways is the better way to say it. It's clear that 30, it's not even close to 30% of, of the infrastructure, the, the, all of the other things I, I know you have written a bit about, and I've been following the Jamaican women's national team, right? Which is struggling to get funding, to even travel to matches from what I understand. They're leaning on a, a fairly wealthy semi-celebrity benefactor to just to, just to be able to play in the games themselves. Uh, there are some ways, and we've talked about some of them where the women's could the commercial side of women's international soccer really does seem to be, you know, doing fairly well relative to the men. And then there's other ways, particularly on the investment side that uh, it seems like uh, just light years away from the way that, that, that male counterparts are treated. I think my favorite part of this whole Jamaica story is like FIFA covers the travel for all of these teams <laughs> to get to the World Cup and then get between their matches there. All you have to do as a federation is like work with FIFA. You have to like call FIFA and say, hey, I represent the Jamaican Soccer Federation or football, what are they, JFF, Jamaican Football Federation. I need to book our travel. Like, how do we do that? What steps are taken? And like, it's just missing pieces like that that just haven't happened. And so now they're scrambling to, you know, crowdfund money to get them there because they've missed the FIFA windows in terms of booking and whatever else. So it's, yeah. And I think this is one of the things that I keep coming back to in this, right? Is like, this is the first time this is going to be an expanded 32 team field for the Women's World Cup. Hmm. It was 24 before? Yes. So you have these extra teams. And in theory, that gives you more inventory. You have more assets for broadcast partners, for commercial partners and whatever else. But if you're going to keep asking for more money and kind of trying to elevate the tournament and the game globally, you also need the product to continue to elevate with it. Right. You Mm -hmm. need all 32 of those teams to be at least somewhat competitive. Not saying that they're all going to be on an equal playing field, but like you can't have teams that are going to get absolutely trounced right that does not help your television product and your sales pitch but fifa's problem right is then 
FIFA doesn't actually have control over how much each of those federations is investing, is or is not investing in their players. So in theory, you have these teams like Jamaica who, you know, some of their players are playing in the NWSL, some are playing in the WSL, right? They're playing during the year in other leagues. But then when it comes to competing internationally for their country, they're not on a level playing field as, you know, the U.S. or the Lionesses or whoever else it is. And so there's this really interesting dichotomy, at least in my like weird Women's World Cup nerdy perspective is like between the fact that you want to keep elevating the game, but you're also expanding it. And there's no way to make sure that all of the teams and countries that are represented are actually also striving for the same mission. Yeah, I remember, I think it was Thailand, but there was a team the U.S. beat last year in the group stage, 12-0, maybe 9-0, something like that. Um, And and you're right, those... Those matches are. That's not. I don't. I don't know who win, who actually wins in the in in that scenario. But you do want to avoid those things. It feels like at the top of the of the rankings, there is more parity than there has been. The the U.S. I think is the favorite, but certainly it's not in the way close. that the U.S. Yeah. has been favorites in the past. The the the, the budding U.S. Uh, England rivalry seems really great. You, you mentioned the French team is very good. Obviously, the the German team is very good as well. It does feel like there is more teams can actually realistically win this tournament than maybe any Women's World Cup that we've had in the past. And that feels like a good thing. I, I get that expanding on the back end runs that risk, but uh, I, I do think the competitive balance at the top creates a, a, a bit more intrigue, even if the U.S. team at least from a U.S. centric standpoint, even if the U.S. team isn't the the, the shoe in to make the final that they have been uh, in years past. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Um, but the other thing that I also think is interesting, right, is like Canada is the reigning Olympic champions. They are also among kind of that like top caliber of teams favorite, and like they also don't have a CBA, and they are also in a pay dispute with their federation, similar to what like the U.S. Women's National Team was in years ago. So like. It is interesting to me that these kind of behind the scenes business problems, like they transcend from the the newest entrance into this kind of stage of global soccer to the favorites to win it all. Yeah, the 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 women's world. I mean, the four years ago, the best player in the world, she's Norwegian. I'm, I'm forgetting her name. She didn't even go to the World Cup, right? She refused to play for Norway as as part of this uh, as as part of a, a fight over how the the Norwegian women's team was was compensated relative to the men's. I do think you're gonna you, you see a lot more of the of the activism around the around the women's World Cup than certainly more than you do around the men's World Cup. And I think that's actually also part of why why I really enjoy this event also, because I do like kind of the socio and political. I like it when that bleeds in, into sports. I know a lot of people don't. I'm stepping on the third rail here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I do think that that is a nice a, a, another benefit of the women's World Cup over the men's World Cup. Yeah, it's definitely a, an aspect that you don't get many other places. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, never a dull moment in uh, the world of FIFA, that's for sure. I'm the, sure there will be updates on the Jamaican team and whoever else in the next two weeks as everyone actually tries to get to Australia. The, the last thing I'll say on this, and I, there's another topic I want to get to, but the uh, I did listen to the Women's World Cup, the official song, and I always love waiting for the, the men's official World Cup song to drop. Um, and I was I was not a fan, Emily. I, I'm not going to try to pronounce the artist's name because it's going to show how old I am. I don't I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, but the song is called "Do It Again," and it did not have the uh, the Shakira vibes that I was uh, that I was hoping for. You know what's funny is as you were saying that I was thinking I think the only 
World Cup song that I could actively like pull from memory is the Shakira. Yeah, the, the one from 2010 in South Africa. Yeah. And then um, there was in that same year, there was a song Waving Flags that, that is also like a soccer or stadium yes. anthem. Uh, so who knows? Maybe maybe do it again. We'll uh, we'll get to that point. Um, I'm curious to hear listeners' thoughts on uh, on on that as well. Uh, before we're, I let you go, Emily, I, I want to talk about another major story that you've been covering in in the world of of women's sports. And this one, I'm honestly just kind of hoping for an explainer. Uh, there there is a lot of, of of changes underway in professional women's hockey here in North America uh, for a while. And, and and I won't even spend too much time setting it up because I don't want to get anything wrong. Uh, but there have essentially been two competing efforts for leagues, one of which was up and playing and the other one, which was uh, talking about Quasi getting up playing. and playing. Yeah. yeah. And the one that was not playing seems to have acquired the one that was playing. I, walk <laughs> us through what exactly is happening right now in, in professional women's hockey here in North America and, and what it means for athletes and fans. Yeah, so I think if you take like a step four years back, so 2019, the CWHL, which was basically like the Canadian counterpart to the NWHL, dissolved. They were essentially only paying players stipends. It was like actually not a great situation for in terms of like a pro athlete experience, even compared to like the early days of the WNBA or NWSL. Like it was a very different ballpark that they were playing in. And so after the CWHL dissolved, most of the kind of Canadian national team and U.S. national team players, so like the best players in both countries said, like, we're done. Like, we're not doing this until this is sustainable and we can build something that actually works for players. Um, and so that's how the PWHPA, which is a horribly hard acronym to get used to at the beginning. <laughs> uh, that's how they were formed. Um, and they basically, okay. like you said, been playing like exhibition games, kind of doing like a tour circuit, if you will, since then. Last year... Uh, they partnered with kind of Billie Jean King, her investment enterprises group, um, and then the Mark Walter group. And so they initially partnered with them in, in with the goal of actually launching a league. People thought it was going to be just PWHPA league, like arriving. Um, and the concern was obviously the NWHL still existed. It had rebranded to the PHF, but like how much room was there for two competing leagues in women's hockey? Mm. People didn't think there was a whole ton. Um, and so what ended up happening People kind of, I think the expectation was that they would compete for a year or two and then it would become pretty clear pretty early on, like who was winning this kind of battle, if you will. Instead, Mark Walter was like, let's just preempt all of that. Um, and he essentially bought, acquired the PHF, but they're not going to, you know, just assume them under the PWHPA umbrella, which I think is where things get tricky is they're actually just going to launch an entirely new league, but it basically is the PWHPA uh, with an absorbed PHF because the folks who are on the board um, are all folks who were PWHPA backers from Billie Jean King, Alana Kloss, um, Jen Katzen. There are obviously you know, some Dodgers folks there. And mm. then the, the CBA that they will be using is the PWHPA negotiated CBA, which actually is huge in its own right because this will be the first women's sports league to launch with the CBA from the start, hmm. um, sets minimum salaries at 35,000 maximum are at 80,000. I think, I don't even know if it's not really like a hard maximum. That's like kind of just where the top ranks will go. Um, they also, you know, now they'll have benefits 401k maternity leave, um, access to healthcare, just things that didn't exist in leagues or weren't really offered to players before. Yeah. Um, but it's the more interesting thing to me was like the day that this deal was announced, the PHF basically just ceased to exist. 
and I think at first the the way this was presented was that both leagues were backing the formation of this new league and some of the PHF assets would be thrown in the mix. Doesn't really seem like that's what's going to happen. Um, most of it, all of the PHF owners are kind of out. They are just no longer part of this new entity. Um, commissioner Reagan Carey will probably have a role in some capacity, um, probably not as commissioner, but one of their leaders. Um, and then the PHF athletes were not really involved in this process whatsoever, but their contracts were essentially like voided the day that this deal happened without them knowing. So as a, as an outside observer, it feels kind of sad to me that the, the league that seemed to do a, to do more to actually try to make this thing work in the U.S. is the one that kind of seems to be, am I wrong in saying that the PHF seems to be losing in this? Yeah. But, I, PHF is th- definitely That feels like karmically this. unfortunate in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think you'll, I mean, you'll definitely see, right. They're going to launch in six, this new league's going to launch in six cities, three in the U S and three in Canada. I would assume some of the elite markets where PHF had some of its strongest franchises, Boston, Toronto, Montreal, like have to be in the mix. Yeah. But you are essentially like losing those teams and the players who were on those teams basically have to like now not only wait till October when the PHF season used to start to see what, you know, to get a paycheck again. Uh, they're now waiting till January when this league will launch. And it just feels like far more uncertainty is now plaguing the players who used to be part of the PHF than those who were with the PWHPA who were always part of this building process. The so you're saying the the Metropolitan Riveters, my my hometown PHF team, one of the legitimately one of the great logos in in professional uh, global sports. Uh, that there, there's a chance that that IP just disappears. That yep. if there's a team in the in, in, in New York, that that it's going to be different. That's that's a, that's sad. That makes me uh, <laughs> that makes me kind of upset. I, if we had more time, I would actually kind of be interested to have this conversation through the lens of what's happening in professional golf right now which is two rival circuits that are merging. There's obviously big consequences for those that were loyalists to the league, the, the, the more incumbent league. There's obviously consequences for the ones that were loyalists to, to the other side as well. No private, no, no sovereign wealth money uh, in, in, in women's hockey, at least not yet, not uh, quite. F- from what I understand. Um, but also from a, from a player standpoint, I would assume because now you have essentially the same amount, even fewer teams and a, a larger player pool, that there are some players that are going to be real winners here. I would assume they're getting pay bumps. And then also some players who were on a professional roster this season that might not be on a professional roster because there just might not be enough spots available moving forward. Yeah. I think the the pay bump thing though, is even debatable, right? Cause like there were some players in the PHF who were slated to make a hundred thousand dollars this year. And now if you're going to the, this new league, your salary, your maximum essentially is $80,000. It is actually cool. In the CBA, they have like stipulations. Hmm. They have to have a certain number of players making the maximum salary and you can only have X amount making the minimum. So they are trying to kind of make sure that players get pushed toward those kind of upper pay rings. Um, But there are players who have already come out from the PHF and said like, now not only do I have to wait four more months to potentially get paid, but I have no idea what I'm going to be making. It's probably going to be less than what I was promised before because the players who were sort of the top tier at the PHF will probably not be those those same top-ranked players that are in this new league when you bring in kind of the Hillary Knights and Kendall Coyne Schofields and all of those folks um, who kind of de- deflected for the P- PWHPA back into the fold. So, so you're getting a consolidated 
market, you're getting all the top players in the world, which you technically didn't have under the the old model. But again, some some, some definitely some growing pains that are going to happen there from a, yeah. from a team ownership perspective. Are are these going to be single entity teams? Are they going to have owners? I know the PHF had some teams, some ownership groups that had multiple teams. They were trying to get away from that model. What is this going to look like from an ownership standpoint? Oh, going back to single entity, okay. which is funny because that is what the PHF has spent the last three years trying to get away from. Mm. Right, like you said, NWHL started a single entity, then they started bringing in all these new owners. They were literally courting new owners as recently as like a month ago before they knew, you know, we're sure that this deal was actually going to go into place about, you know, there were certain groups, uh, one led by John and Joanna Boynton, uh, based in Boston, who owned like half of the league. So they were John, still John was on the off. show a, a year ago or so, maybe a little bit more than a year ago. Yeah, Right. Um, and so they were still trying to find owners to come in and buy off some of the teams that shared ownership groups, um, as was the case with the Boyntons. Uh, and now they are starting from scratch with a new single entity operation. Although obviously this one has kind of a the original NWHL didn't really have the funding in place to be a single entity league when they launched this one. Obviously you have some pretty deep pockets behind it. Um, So there's obviously an upside there to being single entity. Well, I'm going to go, Emily, find a, or maybe start a petition to get the get the Riveters, uh, <laughs> keep them alive in, in whatever the new entity finally does uh, does look like. Emily, this was fun. Thank you for joining me, and and, and we'll have you back soon. Uh, I'll, I'll close the show here, and Scott always makes fun of me for not being able to do it. But again, thank you for joining us. She is Emily Karen on Twitter at underscore E-M Karen. Love a good underscore in the, uh, in the Twitter handle. I am Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. The show is produced by Keith Zanardi and Aaron Greenewald. Thanks to both of them for everything they're doing. Sport- <laughs> Cora Veltman, Sportico's digital media editor, would like you to know that you can follow the Sportacast at Sportacast, which is the hub of the Sportico media network.